Now please take your Bibles again and turn together to 2 Timothy chapter 2. On those times, again, please have a Bible out today. We're going to be turning again from place to place. I will try not to go too quickly, try to allow us to keep up with this. Uh, but again, some of the things in this portion absolutely need to be considered in light of parallel scriptures. And so if you have a Bible, there's some in the pew in front of you. Uh, please have a Bible in your hand today. I think it will be beneficial when we come to the Word of God. We're looking at verse number 11 and following. Again, let's hear the Word of God and we'll pray and ask for God's gracious help. Verse 11 of 2 Timothy 2 says, It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Amen. Let's bow together, please, and seek God's face in prayer. Almighty God and Father, what a blessing it is to have the Bible in our hands. That you, the eternal God, thrice holy, triune God, far above all humanity would yet come and condescend to speak to us in words that we can understand. Oh Lord, this is wonderful grace. And we pray, oh God, you'd help us not to receive the grace of God in vain. Not to hear the preaching of God's word without any profit. But may the word of God indeed nourish and enrich our souls. Come, O oh Lord, we pray. Open our minds to understand these things and open our hearts to gladly receive the truth of thy word. Help every hearer. Give us the grace to remove every distracting thought. Give us the physical strength to attend to the word. And may the word therefore benefit our souls. Bless those watching on also. Again, may the word of God come to all as a word in season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is one of five of Paul's so-called faithful sayings. They occur in the pastor epistles, three in the first letter of Timothy, one in Titus, and one here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's turn to just one by example back in 1 Timothy chapter 1. You have the first of these faithful sayings, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and the verse number 15. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, there are different ideas about these faithful sayings. Certainly, they are sayings about the faith. They are sayings that convey gospel truths. But they're also sayings that are reliable, sayings that are true, and they are faithful in that sense. They are sayings that you can stake your life upon. But also may be the case that they are faithful in the sense that they have been accepted by the church in some form. Faithful in this sense. Because surely it's the case that all of God's word is faithful in being true. All of God's word is faithful in being reliable. So what makes these statements faithful in distinction to the rest of God's word? How are they faithful in that sense? And so some have held to the idea that these faithful sayings 
may well have been early confessions of faith. In other words, things that are passed around the churches. These are the things that are most surely believed among us. Early doctrinal Christian statements of faith. And as they're passed around, they were memorized. They were readily accessible. And therefore, when Paul says, this is a faithful saying, they're all wondering, well, I wonder which one it's going to be. Which of these faithful sayings will Paul use to illustrate his point and to underscore what he is saying? It's like using a quotation. You know, sometimes I'll refer to quotations of men of old, and I will do it in a way to say, well, I'm, I'm not saying something new here. I'm teaching something that is established. It's agreed. You know, agreement is important in the Christian church. And these early examples, they prove the fact that churches are what we might term confessional. They stand upon certain true principles. It's not a free-for-all theologically. But those theological statements are also practical. They're learned by the people. They benefit the people. They grow in knowledge through these statements. And so Paul says, it is a faithful saying. Quite a few of the writers suggest that this faithful saying may actually have been a confessional hymn, an early hymn sung by the church. I think such is hard to prove dogmatically, but there is certainly a meter to this section. There are parallels. There's a poetic structure in the language. Note it closely, please. Back to chapter 2 and the verse number 11. Note there are four clauses that involve we to begin with. If we be dead, we shall also live. If we suffer, and then verse 13, if we believe not. So there are these four lines, if you like, in the confession or in the hymn. And in those four lines, there is the statement, and then there is the consequence. If we be dead, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall reign with him. You see how these form as couplets? There's a statement and then a consequence. And then there's another statement. If we suffer, or sorry, if we deny him, number three, he also will deny us. And then number four, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. But that last one is a difficult one. And we'll come to that towards the end of the message. What I believe you're seeing here, you're seeing these four stanzas, four lines in a confession or in a hymn, two of which come in the form of promises, and two of which come as a warning. Two promises, living and reigning. Two warnings, he will deny us and he is faithful. I've got to prove that last one, and I'll try to do that before we close today. Four lines in two parts. There's a structure here. And the point that we're meant to see is, Paul is presenting a contrast. A contrast between loyalty and disloyalty. A contrast between true profession and false profession. A contrast between perseverance and apostasy, a falling away. It's a contrast. The first two lines, they show the true. They show the persevering. They show the loyal. The last two lines, they show the unbelieving, the false, and the apostates. And so I think that's the structure. And so we're seeing these verses as really illustrating Paul's point, really in the previous chapter and a half. He's been exhorting Timothy. 
Be strong. He's been exhorting Timothy, don't fall back because of my suffering. Realize that you're going to stand and endure all things for the elect's sake, verse number 10. And so he's reinforcing that. He's, he's pulling from his memory and saying, here's a quotation to reinforce everything we've seen thus far. Driving the point home to Timothy and I trust to our own hearts. So first of all then, please note that as we look at this theme of loyalty, and I'm going to take the positive. Loyalty to Christ begins in death. Verse number 11. It is a faithful saying. If we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. It's a strange statement, isn't it? If we die, we live. It's not strange to the reader of God's word. It comes up in the Gospels. It comes up all the time. There is a need to die in order to live. Now, there are some options here. Some various ways in which this may be understood. There are some who take the idea that this Death is the death of the martyr. The context is of suffering. Paul's about to die, and therefore he's telling Timothy, even if you die as a martyr, you shall live. And that's one of the ways these verses are understood. It's, again, a promise, an encouragement. Press on. Don't give up. Even though your life is taken from you, there's still the prospect of life with God forevermore. Some suggests, well, it may not actually be about actually dying, because the next text refers to enduring. We'll see that in verse number 12. It refers to pressing on through suffering. So therefore, it's just about being willing to die, dying to self in that sense. And if we die to self, we take up a cross, we shall live with the Lord. Maybe that idea. I don't think, though, either of those are the primary thought here. And I say that because of the term that is used here in verse number 11, if we be dead, and it's this phrase, with him. Now, you will note the word him is there in italics. The words dead with translate one word in the original. And in the original, the prefix to the word, it's a word for death, is the three-letter prefix in Greek, soon, and it has the idea of together. And so what he's saying is, if we be dead together, and then helpfully the authorized version has used this word him to help us get the sense. If we be dead with him. Referring back, of course, to Christ in verse number 10, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. If we be dead together. Well, together must mean someone else. And so I think correctly, the King James Version translators have supplied the word him to give us a sense of the term. It is dying together with Christ. The same verb is used by Peter. Remember, Peter gets in a twist in terms of the Lord warning him. He's going to deny him. Um, Peter says in Mark chapter 14, he spake the more vehemently, if I should die with thee. Together with you, even if I die with you, I'm not going to deny you. That was Peter's language at that time. And so you get this idea of what is it to die with Christ? If this is true for all believers, then in what sense do all believers die with Christ? And of course, Paul has taken that concept and used it several times before. 
It's not a new idea for the Apostle Paul. And so Paul's usage should govern our understanding of this particular text. Hence, you need your Bible. Going back to Romans chapter 6, please. Romans chapter 6. Again, young people, please understand this. I'm not so young. Understand, please, the Bible must always interpret the Bible. And so there are various rules of interpretation. And so you see a difficult little phrase like this, and what could it possibly mean? Well, yes, you look at the context. It's certainly dealing with the issues of suffering and tragedy in terms of your Christian life. You may lose your life for the gospel. But how does Paul use the same language elsewhere? Well, Romans chapter 6, he talks about dying with Christ. Verse number 8, Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So, Pastor, how does this help us? The living with him would seem to suggest living in the future. But it doesn't. It partly points in that direction. But the whole point of Romans chapter 6 in these early verses is answering the accusation that if the gospel gives free salvation and free forgiveness, why would you bother live a righteous life? And so Paul, going back to chapter 6, verse 1, says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? It's referring to our spiritual baptism by the Holy Spirit whereby we are dead to self and dead to sin, but we're only dead to self and dead to sin in our union with Christ Jesus. So verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And so the life here is describing a sanctified life, a life that's free from the dominion of sin. So it's not just referring to our hope of resurrection. That's referred to certainly in verse number 5. If we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. But the point of resurrection there is not future life. The point of resurrection there is that Christ has died to sin and lived, and we in the same fashion, we die to sin and live under righteousness. The point is about sanctification. That by the power of God in our lives, Christ's death has secured freedom from the power of sin that we may live. And so if we be dead with him, we shall live with him. Of course, not denying for a second, and we're going to come to it, the prospect of eternal life with Christ. But the point right now is that Paul uses the language of dying with Christ as leading to a believer walking in units of life free from the power of sin. You see it also across in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in the verse number 14. Here the language is slightly different, although again the concept is the same. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Of course, the one dying for all refers to Christ. Refers to Christ dying on the behalf of his people, being made sin for us. Verse number 21. 
But look at what it says. If one died for all, then we're all dead. And it's this idea of the believer's union with Christ and his death. It's teaching us in simple terms. What does Christ's death do for you? Well, you say, well, it secures forgiveness and cleansing from sin. And I'm saying, yes, but Paul also taught that not only does Christ's death secure forgiveness, it secures deliverance from sin's power. That it does not dominion over you in the way it once did. Because what happens when Christ died and you're in union with Christ and you come to trust in Christ, you die in that sense. There's the death of the old man and the resurrection of the new man. And so it says in verse 15, and that he died for all, listen to this, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You see the importance of this? It's this idea that when Christ dies, he secures for his people the power to break sin's reign, whereby they don't need to live as a slave for sin any longer. They can live free, and they can worship God. They can know eternal life now that will never end. Life that knows communion with God. The dead man, dead to sin, but now alive, whereby we talk with God, and we listen to God, and we walk with God, and we work for God. Those things that come as part of being a believer. Life, beginning with death. One last proof text, and that's Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, in the verse number 19. Again, you will see the similar language being used here. Galatians 2, verse 19. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. And how does he die to the law? Well, verse number 20, I am dead with Christ. But this time the death is explicitly termed, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not I will live in the future, but I live now. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live now, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wonderful text of Scripture. But again, tying together the fact that our union with Christ and his death then leads inevitably to a life living for the Savior going forward. Right, this language is difficult. concept is, is abstract in terms of, of so many of our lives. And so I, I think it's helpful to think of it this way. Before you were in Christ, you lived for sin. Before you were in Christ, you had no desire to talk to God or walk with God or please the Lord. And then you're, you're converted. You know it and your experiences are changed in your life. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. As a change happens and now you want to walk with God. And so in your experience, you just see the change. This is the Doctrine underneath that change. It is teaching the fact that Christ's death secured the power for that change. That in him dying for his people, he then ensures that those who trust in him, they know the same deliverance. They die in union with him and they rise again. You say, well, Christ died 2,000 years ago. Well, yes, but the power of resurrection is secured by his triumph over death, whereby you can know victory in your life. And you die to self and live unto God. 
This is the true Christian testimony. And the reason it's so confused today is that we have all manner of false understandings regarding Christianity. Ideas of a decision, a profession, without any profound change in life. And so there's all these people out there who profess to walk in Christ. But this is not a reality for them. And so you wonder to yourself, what does this actually mean? Well, think about what God did in your life. And realize again that what he did in your life, he did through the blood of Christ on the cross. There are different ways to picture salvation. It's a new birth. You're born again, born anew. But it's also pictured sometimes in this term of dying, dying to self, and rising again to live unto God. The old man dies, and we live unto God as a new man. You see, if you're saved, you died with Christ. And you will live now and forevermore. And that's how I think we should understand 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 11. If we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Now and forever. Because we will not die again. We're alive. And within us now is the eternal life that comes from God. Loyalty to Christ. That loyalty begins with death. But secondly, loyalty to Christ continues. And no matter the cost or the consequence. Again, we have this, this idea. Now, you'll see it in verse number, verse number 12. Remember, these are parallels. If we dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Now, the word suffer there is a word that is translated elsewhere with the word to endure. It's not suggesting that simply suffering is the pathway to living with God forevermore. There's no virtue in simply suffering. You know, some of the cults and the false religions have that idea that in suffering you earn God's favor in some way. This is not describing the idea that you simply suffer and then through suffering you find yourself in glory. The word that is used here is the word for endure, used that way elsewhere. And it's making the point that those who live for God, they then endure their afflictions. They press on through the matters of their sufferings. Let me show you some of these references. Turn, please, initially to Hebrews chapter 12. It's probably the best known reference to this word. This word endure, it's translated with the word endure in Hebrews chapter 12. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12, verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him, here's the word that's used for suffer in 2 Timothy, who for the joy that was set before him suffered the cross or endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. It is not, an, it's not a passive suffering involved here. It's not laying back and just taking what comes to you. It's pressing on and enduring that suffering pressing on through the suffering by faith. That's the idea. Same is used there in verse number 3. For consider him, again the same word, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be weary and faint in your minds. It's got this idea of enduring. It's also used in James chapter 1. Turn across a couple of pages. James chapter 1. In verse number 12, and again, you'll see the sense here. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. 
For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. This idea of persevering in the midst of the suffering, persevering in the affliction. And then one last, James chapter 5 and the verse number 11. But we count them happy, and here's the language again, which endure. Ye have heard of the patience. Again, here's this word patience. It's the same word. We count them happy which are patient. Ye have heard of the patience of Job. We count them happy which suffer. Ye have heard of the suffering of Job. All the language is the same idea, but the context is much more active. We sometimes think about illness and we suffer the affliction. It kind of comes upon us and we can do nothing about it. Well, the idea here is that when affliction comes, we do not waver. You see, going back to 2 Timothy, please note that these opening two lines of this confession or this hymn, they are parallel to the second two lines, the lines three and four. So if we be dead, we shall live. If we suffer, we shall reign. If we deny, if we believe not. So the suffering is parallel to this idea of denying Christ or not believing in Christ. So suffering here means trusting Christ as Lord and Savior despite the hardships of life. It's like as if Paul is saying to Timothy, don't give up on Christ. We need this word. Sometimes we need the word from God to increase our faith. We need to hear from God to believe stronger, have stronger convictions regarding God's faithfulness. This word comes as a word in crisis and in trial. Just don't give up on Christ. The temptation may be to deny Christ and to fall into faithlessness. Suffer. Hold on and endure in the trial. And the promise is that we shall live and reign with him. Thirdly, that's a quick one. This loyalty to Christ leads to and results in glory with Christ. Here again, we've got to take a step back. So if you're kind of sluggish and drowsy, give yourself a shake. What I'm going to say in the next few minutes is very, very important. We are loyal to Christ only because of Christ's work in us by the Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 1, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So our loyalty to Christ is not because of our strength, it's because of Christ's strength in us. We persevere, we suffer, we endure, verse 12, only by His grace and only by His strength. Therefore, our loyalty is not the cause of glory. We don't earn glory by loyalty. We don't somehow deserve God's favor in the end because we've been loyal and steadfast. Loyalty is only by grace. And glory is only by grace. Never earned, only by Christ and by His virtue. You've got to always understand that. If you miss that, and you find yourself faltering at some point in your life, you may think your loyalty is wavering, therefore perhaps your glory will waver. It's only in Christ. Having said that, only the loyal will live and reign with Christ. 
Only those who persevere to the end will be saved. The Bible's clear in that as well. It's by grace, it's by the Spirit. But in terms of reality, in terms of practicality, those who live and reign with Christ forevermore are those who have been loyal to Christ. This is an encouragement in our troubles that as we press on, we have the prospect and the hope. We look to the future. We shall reign with Him. That's a great prospect and great hope. But it's also a warning to the empty professor, to those who have sought to walk with Christ for a season but are now falling back. It's a warning to them. And so it comes by the apostle in these language, this language. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. And so the loyalty that, if you like, leads to glory and reigning with Christ is contrasted with Christ denying us. That's the contrast. Hence, only those who are loyal to Christ will know glory. Because those who are not loyal to Christ, he will deny. You get that? That's the point of the passage. It's a warning to the disloyal. It's a comfort to those who are steadfast in Christ. And so the contrast comes by way of a promise and in light of the warnings of perdition. Note the promise to begin with. The promise is, verse number 12, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Reign. That's what a king does. This idea of dominion. And yet here we have a passage that tells us that God's people will reign with Christ. What on earth does that mean? Well, we know from Romans chapter 8 that if we suffer with Christ, we may be also glorified together. We know that from Romans chapter 8, this idea of glory, even for those who suffer with Christ. The context here, 2 Timothy chapter 2. But please turn to Revelation. The language of future reign you would expect to find in a book that speaks so much about the future blessings of those who will suffer for Christ. Remember our studies in Revelation? Written to church, you're suffering persecution, suffering greatly for their witness for Christ Jesus. They are witnesses, they are martyrs for the Lord. And in the context of martyrdom, there is much language regarding reigning and righteousness. Revelation chapter 1, verse number 6. Now let's go to verse number 5. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our, own, our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. The promise of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, coming to fulfillment in those who have been washed in Christ's blood. The promise of being a king unto God. When? How? Well, at times in Revelation... This reign as seen as, is seen as being a heavenly reign. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Now before I go any further, I understand that there will be different understandings as to when this takes place and how it takes place and all manner of conjecture. The difference of opinions does not remove the truth that the believer has a promise that they will reign with Christ. Revelation chapter 20 there's a picture here, a description. I saw an angel come down from heaven, the key and the chain. And then verse number four, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. My thrones in Revelation are found in heaven. There are thrones, heavenly thrones. Judgment was given unto them. 
I saw not the bodies, but the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. Again, the souls of those who have been beheaded, they're martyrs for the word of God. They haven't worshipped the beast, nor his image. But what does it say? And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such a second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. Suggesting too, this is a heavenly reign. It's also the case though, in Revelation chapter 5, that the believers are given the promise of an earthly reign. Revelation chapter 5. And the verse number 10. It's a new song. The Lamb is worthy to take to the book and open the seals thereof. He's been slain. He's redeemed His people to God by His blood. And verse number 10. And has made us unto your God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. It's an earthly reign. So you've got this reign promised to those who are faithful to Christ Jesus. And yet elsewhere, it's an eternal reign. Revelation 11 and the verse number 15. Revelation 11, the verse number 15. And the seven angels sounded, seven angels sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders who sit before God in the seats fell upon their face and worshipped God. He shall reign forever and ever. Christ will reign forever and ever. But if we reign with him, then we also reign forever and ever. His reign is eternal, therefore the believer's reign is also eternal in the sense of being unending. And that's what's taught in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, in describing the glorified new heavens and the new earth. Jerusalem has come down upon earth, it says, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The promise of this ongoing, unbroken reign of God's people with Christ and His eternal reign. We shall reign with Him. When and how? Well, clearly, there are going to be some differences in understanding the progression and the stages of this promise. But think of Christ's kingdom. We are sharing in his kingdom, his reign. He reigns now, and yet not yet. There's an aspect of his reign that right now is in the throne of David, and he's reigning over this world, working out his good and perfect will as he pleases. And yet he's reigning until every enemy is under his feet. And so in one sense, if you die before Christ returns, you will go with Christ and you will share in his reign now. It's part of your prospect that you will join in the beauty of that kingdom, that kingdom that is known in part in heaven right now. And yet it's not all that will be. There's the prospect of Christ coming back, bringing about the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And in that context, you shall reign forever and forever. Now, some of you will have ideas of reign on this earth in different ways. But you won't deny those two extremes. There's a reign for those who die now. And there's a reign for those after Christ returns. In the middle, there's going to be some differences. Fine. We hold the promise that we shall reign. So if that's the when, 
What is it? Well, when you think of reign, you should think of dominion. And when you think of dominion, you should think of Adam. Adam was the first king of creation. And he lost his throne by his sin. And Christ is the second king of the new creation. He takes what Adam did not deserve. Christ, in his obedience, is given the name of every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And Christ now has dominion, all enemies under his feet, and we share in that. And so what you're seeing here is a picture that we share in dominion over the new creation. And that means there can be nothing that will harm us, nothing to hurt us, no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow. That's our reign. And we live with Christ forever and forever, praise the Lord. And we delight in God's creation with fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That is the prospect of the child of God. It is this reality of living as a king unto God in the new heavens and the new earth, that eternal state of bliss and glory. We shall reign with him. Oh, there's so much in those words. Believers reigning on this earth, the promise of the purpose of God in creation being restored. What Adam lost, restored in fullness, because Christ, the second Adam, died that we might live in him. That's the promise. But there is also then the warning, the perdition. There are two clauses, again, back uh, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. There is the promise. If we suffer, we shall reign with him. And then there's a warning. If we deny him, he also will deny us. That he will deny us is relatively straightforward. Because Christ himself used that language in Matthew chapter 10. Turn back there, please. Matthew chapter 10, the verse number 32. Matthew 10 and verse 32, Christ gives this warning, again, to the general, the, the company of the disciples. He says in verse 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. There's the Lord's warnings. Warnings to the apostate, to the one who once confessed Christ. But then when trouble came, because verse number 34 tells us that Christ came not to send peace, but a sword. And so when persecution comes, there were those who once walked with Christ but when trouble comes, they will deny Christ rather than confessing Christ. You see, to confess Christ is to acknowledge Him publicly. He is Lord, the supreme God. Lord and God and Savior. And professing that publicly, though our lives may be taken for that very confession. Remember we saw this in Revelation? The Roman authorities said, Caesar is Lord. Confess Caesar as Lord or else die. And believers find themselves literally at the point of the sword or in the point of the flaming torch. Will you confess Christ or will you deny Christ? And they were to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And they made that confession and they lost their lives for that confession. And those who lost their lives for that confession, what are they doing right now? They're reigning with Christ. That's what they're doing right now. 
But those who denied the Lord, what's the outcome of their denials? Christ will also deny them. Their hearts are exposed as being hypocritical, as being false. They have not been loyal to Christ. They've shown in their disloyalty that they do not have this new life. And so it's a warning. It's a warning to deniers. It's a warning to those who reject Christ. It's a warning to those who preach false beliefs regarding Christ. Anything to deny the true Christ. It's a warning to those especially who once confessed but now have abandoned their confession. It's tied with this issue of unbelief. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not. You see, those who deny Christ are guilty of the sin of unbelief. The question is, in what sense is God faithful to those who believe not? Verse number 13. Is it a comfort? Has it the idea that our unbelief can't escape God's faithfulness? I read some this week who suggest that God brings people to salvation even if they are faithless. It's quite a popular thought in the modern writings, this idea that believing not is less than denying him. Denying him is outright apostasy, but there are those who are, who are weak in faith and they believe not, yet he's faithful and they, they are brought to salvation. But these lines are parallel. To deny Christ is to be guilty of unbelief. And thus it says, he will deny us. And that is parallel, verse number 13, with the fact that he abideth faithful. God cannot deny himself. He will always remain true to himself and to his character. And he will be faithful to those who deny him, faithful in his justice. Faithful in bringing judgment upon their sin and unbelief. God is not faithful if he overlooks sin and apostasy. He is faithful in bringing judgment against those who believe not. And let me prove that to you and then we're finished. Romans chapter 3. Paul uses this verb to believe not only in one other place. The language is used elsewhere. There's all manner of nouns and adjectives used, but the verb is used only in one other place. It's Romans chapter 3, verse number 3. What For what if some did not believe? Referring to the Jews. They have much blessing. They've got the oracles of God. But what if they don't believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let, let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. And what's the context? It is the context of God bringing about judgment. God will be faithful to his word, faithful to his promises, faithful to his covenant, and one of the parts of God's covenantal faithfulness is to judge those who live in rebellion and unbelief. Indeed, Second Timothy comes and brings warnings to several who are guilty of turning away from the faith. And so the warning comes at the end. God will be true to himself, but in being true to himself, he will deny you and will bring you to judgment not to glory. It's a tremendously strong warning against apostasy. 
And we can talk at length about being saved and lost. And you know that I believe that you cannot be saved and lost. But I believe that it's very possible to forsake a profession. To walk in a season claiming a Christian identity, looking like a true Christian in so many ways. And yet when trouble comes, the Lord is denied. And the heart is truly revealed as not being one that died with Christ. But the old man still lives and reigns. It's a tremendous warning against forsaking a profession that was made. It's very sobering. It's a warning, however, also against unbelief, period. If this happens to those who forsake their profession, surely the same will happen to those who have no profession, who do not believe the gospel, who will not confess Christ. If you die or Christ returns and your state is a state of unbelief, God's faithfulness guarantees your eternal destruction. That is the reality of the Bible. And it must sink into all of our souls today. It must drive us to pray for the lost. It must drive us to the point that we seek to share the gospel with the lost. That we seek that God will work in our community, in our neighborhood. It's a faithful saying. It's a summary of the gospel. Christ died on the cross. Christ lives in the power of endless life. He reigns in that endless life now. And the believer in union with Christ dies to sin and to self. Lives unto God and will reign with Christ forever and forever. That is the joy and the delight of the child of God. I don't know if any of you read Spurgeon's morning and evenings. But this morning was about looking to the future. And he said this. Looking further yet. The believer's enlightened eye can see death's river past, the gloomy stream forded, and the hills of light attained on which standeth the celestial city. He seeth himself enter within the pearly gates, healed as more than conqueror, crowned by the hand of Christ, embraced in the arms of Jesus, glorified with him, and made to sit together with him on his throne, even as he is overcome and has sat down with the Father on his throne. The thought of this future may well relieve the darkness of the past and the gloom of the present. The joys of heaven will surely compensate for the sorrows of earth. Hush, hush, says Virgin. Hush, hush, my doubts. Death is but a narrow stream, and thou shalt soon have forded it. Time, how short. Eternity, how long. Death, how brief. Immortality, how endless. If we suffer... We shall also reign with him. May our hearts be loyal to Christ. Let's bow together in prayer, please. Lord God, we thank you for this faithful saying. Entrusted to the church. Used even by the apostle to encourage our hearts 2,000 years later. The word of God comes with such freshness to our souls. Oh Lord, we find ourselves at times and we're confronted with the danger of falling into unbelief. This word is difficult. Our lives can be difficult. 
And it can seem to be easier to deny Christ and to walk with Christ. May we realize the consequence of such a decision. Help us to walk humbly with Christ. Bless this gathering. We think of those present and those watching on who are, who are guilty of unbelief. Oh Lord, have mercy upon their souls. May you open their hearts to receive the beauty of Christ Jesus. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen.